1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, I praise you today that because of your redeeming grace, we do have a song to sing. Lord, because you have redeemed us through the cross of Christ and the shed blood, our sins have been paid for and removed. And Lord, we thank you for love, your love for us, the love you put in our hearts for each other. And Lord, you know it's been my prayer these past several days, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would move so that people could forgive, could forgive those who have sinned against them and who have committed offenses against them. Would you grant that in your divine pleasure? Even today, I pray in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Today I want to build on what we talked about last weekend, Easter weekend. And man, we had a glorious time on Easter, didn't we? Just praising Jesus and uh, worshiping our risen Lord and Savior and just glorying in all of that. And um, I know that some of you, because of the spring break schedules, were doing some traveling, perhaps were out of town. So if you weren't here, I want to just summarize for you what we talked about last weekend. We really eavesdropped on a late-night conversation between Jesus Christ and a very religious fellow named Nicodemus. The dialogue is recorded in John chapter 3. And during the course of that conversation, Jesus looked at this religious man and said, Nick, if you ever want to see heaven, you must be born again. And we explored together this phenomenon 
of being born again, the new birth. One of the things that we discovered is that being born again means participating in what's often called the new covenant or the New Testament. You say, what's that? Well, that was a promise made by God in the Old Testament in which he declared that he would one day remove from his people their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, a warm, soft, sensitive heart that is responsive to God, that is alive to God. I even had a prop, a a heart. Remember that? That pinkish-looking thing? And afterwards, a middle school girl came up to me in the lobby and said, Ooh, that was so icky. So, so much for my attempts to use props. But coming alive to God, being born again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of someone who simply believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who does this work, it's sometimes called being born of the Spirit or being born of God. Now, the question I want to explore together with you this week is, What's in that heart? What exactly is, is inside of that new heart that is alive to God? What, what qualities are in it? What new capacities and abilities come to us by being born again and receiving this new heart of flesh? Some of you were genuinely born again last weekend, and we rejoice with you in that. And my hope today is that you will understand that you now possess some new capacities as a result of receiving eternal life, receiving that new heart that we talked about. One person that I talked to about it this week said, you know, I was born again on Easter Sunday. I walked up there and signed the, the spiritual certificate and was prayed over, and they said to me, one thing that happened was that an offense, a grudge that I'd been carrying and nursing for five years was just taken out of me, and I was able to forgive just came alive to God in that way. Well, I'd like to read some verses of Scripture that reveal some of the primary evidences of new life, of having that new heart. Three of them, actually. I've heard them called heartbeats of this new heart that's alive to God or rhythms of this new heart. I've also heard them called birthmarks of a truly born-again person, birthmarks of a Christian. You will find these three qualities in some measure in every person who's truly been born of God. Notice these scriptures, 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God, that's, that's it, born, born again, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Say the word with me, faith. It's an important word. You can circle that. Then 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, now we are children of God. We've been born again. We're in his family now. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Great promise. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him, circle that word, hope, purifies himself just as he is pure. And then 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Circle that word love. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been what? Born of God, born again, and knows God. Do you see them? Do you see the three birthmarks? Faith, 
hope, and love. What's in that new heart that God promised to his people? Faith, hope, and love. What's the proof that someone has been truly born again? Faith, hope, and love. How does this eternal Zoe life that we talked about last week, how does it show itself in in someone's life? Faith, hope, and love. What's the evidence that the wind of the Spirit has blown into someone's heart and transformed them? Faith, hope, and love. You say, well, these are beautiful words. What are they? What are these things? What is faith? Well, at its core, faith is simply believing God, isn't it? Believing God, trusting God, trusting His heart, His purposes, His word, His ways. Faith is believing and trusting in our Creator, God. Hope is the confident expectation that God will indeed fulfill all of the promises that he has made to us regarding our future, regarding what's coming. It's our confident expectation that he's going to make good on those promises. And love is sacrificing yourself for the highest good of someone else. That's not what our culture tells us love is, but that's what the Bible tells us love is. Self-sacrifice for the highest good of others. Now, you know what? Faith is active, isn't it? It's not just something that resides in your heart. It's active. James says that faith works. Paul tells us that faith speaks. I believe, therefore, I have spoken. The writer of Hebrews tells us that faith obeys. So faith is active. Hope is active. Hope endures, Paul says. Hope perseveres. Hope does not give up. Hope purifies us. As we look forward and anticipate that day when we will see Jesus face to face, it purifies our lives right here and now. So hope is active, faith is active, and you know what else? Love is active. Love sacrifices, love gives, it's active. 1 John 3.16 says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. There it is. Self-sacrifice for the highest good of others. Jesus did that. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with what? Actions and in truth. Love is active. Love is not consumed with self Love lays down its own life for the highest good of others. Well, just combing through the scriptures this week, I've come to see in in more vivid detail just how important these qualities of faith, hope, and love were to the Apostle Paul, particularly in his writings. If If you have these lenses on when you're reading the Bible looking for faith, hope, and love, you find them all over the place. Look at uh, just as a couple examples. He wrote a letter to the Colossians, this church that he had influenced in verse 3 of chapter 1. Here's what he wrote. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There they are, this triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love. Well, maybe that was an isolated instance. He wrote to the Thessalonian church, chapter 1, verse 2. Here's what he wrote. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of 
faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again, faith, hope, and love. In fact, you can read in Galatians, you can read in Ephesians, you can read in Hebrews. We don't know whether or not Paul wrote Hebrews, maybe someone else did. Faith, hope, and love, faith, hope, and love. The more I read these passages, the several truths came to mind. First, in Paul's mind, these were the measure of a successful church. How you doing in faith, hope, and love? Paul evaluated the health and the maturity of the churches that he had planted and the churches that he was vested in by how they were doing in those areas. When he wrote letters to him, his first comments were almost always about faith, hope, and love. Hey, you're doing great in faith. You're doing good in hope. Your love needs a little work. Let's talk about that for a bit. Or some other combination. In his mind, a church's success was not measured by seating capacity, or the size of their building, or the number of parking spaces, or how hip and cool their worship team was, or their pastor, was not measured by their weekend attendance, or the amount of their offerings, or the number of small groups or leaders. All those things have their place, but they're conspicuously absent in Paul's writings to his churches. But what you see is faith, hope, and love. Not as easily measured... Yeah, you're about a 6.5 on faith, 4.2 on hope, and 7.8 on love. Not as easily measured, but extremely important to the health and vitality and maturity of a church. Second thing I notice is that these are qualities that can grow and can increase. When you receive that new heart from God, When you come alive to God in that way, that heart has the capacity for faith, hope, and love, but they can grow over time so that, you know, when you're 14 or 18 or 25 or 40 or 60, your faith and hope and love can grow during those years, can be stretched, can be strengthened. Check out uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, where Paul wrote, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, Because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for another is increasing. So your faith and your love are are growing. And then he went on to shore up their hope, which was a little deficient at that point. So these are qualities that can grow and increase. After we've been born again for five years or 10 or 15 or 20, our faith and hope and love ought to be at higher levels. Third, I noticed that these became the focus of Paul's prayers for people, faith, hope, and love. Now, we pray for a lot of things, don't we? In our small groups, in our Brothers Keeper prayer time, we pray for all kinds of things for each other, and and, and that's great. But one thing I noticed is that as Paul noticed a deficit or a deficiency in any of these areas, that became the focus of his prayer for those believers or for, for that church. Interestingly, he always wrote out his prayers and then sent him a letter so that they could see what he was praying about. When he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 9, he wrote this, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. Hey, you Philippians, your love needs some work. 
You need a more knowledgeable and discerning love. Man, you guys are embracing everything that's coming down the pike. That's not wise. So I'm praying that your love will be on the increase and it'll be be more discerning. So these things became the focus of Paul's prayers for people, their faith, their hope, and their love. And then I noticed that there's a hierarchy among these three virtues, isn't there? While each of them is beautiful and vitally important, one of them stands above the others as the greatest. And so now faith, hope, and love remain, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. You ever wondered why? Why is love greater than faith and hope? I got to thinking about that this week. A couple things came to mind. Why is love the greatest? Because love encompasses and includes faith and hope. In the great love chapter that we read a few moments ago, it says in verse 7, love believes all things. What's that? Faith. And it says love hopes all things. So faith and hope are included in love. That's why love's greater. Also, love is going to outlast faith and hope. You know, when you get to heaven, and I hope that you do, you won't need faith anymore. Your faith will be made sight. Everything you believed in that was invisible to your, you know, eyesight in this age is going to be realized. You won't need faith anymore in heaven, and you won't need hope anymore because all of your hopes and dreams will be realized when you set your eyes on Jesus Christ. But love will remain forever. Throughout all of eternity, we will be loving each other and loving God, and God will be loving us and each other. So love is going to outlast faith and hope, and that's another reason why it's the greatest of the three. And then think about this. Love is most like God. I don't know that God needs faith. I don't know that God needs hope. But God is love. He is love. So all three of these beautiful, glorious virtues exist, but the greatest is love. Maybe that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Follow the way of love. Now, this is one of those messages that's not going to end up where I originally thought it was going to end up. I prayed through these passages this week, and I meditated on faith and hope and love. And I meditated on the fact that love is the greatest virtue and it's the strongest evidence of the new birth, being born again and eternal life. I also pondered that love is the primary measure of how we're doing as a church. Are we becoming a more loving church? I also recalled numerous conversations that I've been in lately with new lifers and some that I've overheard, and some that I've seen on Facebook. And I kept bumping up against a barrier to love that I think is present within some of us, maybe many of us, an internal obstacle that prevents us from loving certain people who are in our lives. Now, follow me on this. We read these words earlier. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It it does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. 
Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And all of that is true about true love. But it may not be true of us if we are harboring bitterness and resentment towards someone in our life. If we're refusing to forgive someone for hurting us or betraying us or mistreating us or abusing us, we can't love them because you know what? You can't love someone if you hate them, right? In many cases, the first act of love is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Let's be honest, you can't really love someone if you haven't forgiven them for what they did or what they said. They hurt you so badly. You can't love them because you'd rather punish them and penalize them and try to get even with them and hurt them back or at least hope they're being hurt some way. Love for that person is being blocked by the unforgiveness in your heart. Until you release that person from the offense, you can't really love them. So forgiveness is often the first act of love. Maybe you hear that and you're saying, well, I'll forgive a lot of people, Steve, but not them. They made themselves my enemy because of what they did or what they said or how they abused me or how they mistreated me. Listen to the Lord's own words, Luke 6.32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. It doesn't take a new heart to do that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful to his enemies that's what he's saying but they made themselves my enemy mark eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You say, wait a second. Is this teaching that if we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us? It sure looks that way. I'd have to do a lot of twisting and finagling of the text to make it mean something different than what it appears to be saying. And you say, well, how can this be? Here's how it can be. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. And it is inconceivable to the planner of the gospel, the creator of the gospel, 
to God, that someone who has believed the gospel or who says they've believed the gospel, which means they've been forgiven of like 10 gazillion dollars of sin debt, like a lifetime of sins forgiven by God, it's inconceivable to God that that person who's been released from that amount of a debt would turn around and refuse to forgive a little 10 or $20 offense debt against them. It's inconceivable to him. I've forgiven you a lifetime of sins and offenses against me, and you're going to hold on to that little 10-buck deal? When we truly understand the gospel, it right-sizes our perspective of what others have done to us. Puts it in perspective. Colossians 3.13, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Matthew 18.21, Peter talking with Jesus. Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? I think he was feeling rather merciful that day, being pretty magnanimous in his own mind. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And I don't think he meant that you'd carry around a little pad, you know. Okay, I'm up to 214 with Joe and 186 with Bill. I think he was using hyperbole as many times as you are sinned against. Extend forgivenesses. Repeat offenses require repeat forgivenesses. Luke 23, Jesus, as they were driving the spikes into his wrists, said what? Father, forgive them. Now, if that were me and they were doing that to me, I would have said, Father, annihilate them, (laughs) slaughter them, kill them, pay them back a thousand times over for what they're doing to me. But he said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness is a Christ-like thing. And it's often the first act of love, especially when it comes to loving your enemies. You know, I took some time this week to, you can Google forgiveness stories. And there are websites that chronicle story after story after story of people who have forgiven their abusers, their kidnappers, their captors. It's pretty inspiring stuff. But I gained some insights from some other stories. I I reread the story of Joseph this week in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Remember this story? Joseph, the brash young teenager who received a dream, a prophetic dream from God. And yeah, he probably shared it a little bit too early with his brothers. It may have needed to have shown more self-restraint, but he let it out there. And of course, they resented it. And his brothers, his siblings, ended up turning on him, selling him up the river, mistreating him, betraying him. Humanly speaking, he had every right, humanly speaking, to be bitter and upset, angry. And 30 years later, Joseph found himself down in Egypt over all of the granaries of Egypt, all of their food supplies, and his brothers come from Israel, which is experiencing famine, to Egypt, and there's this 
scene recorded in Genesis 45 where his brothers are there, you know, they don't even know it's Joseph. It's been 30 years. They haven't seen him in 30 years. He just looked different. And finally he says, I'm Joseph. And there's this scene described where they're hugging and kissing and he's forgiving them. And they're feeling pretty smitten at that point, you know, beating themselves up. And he looks at him and says, look, what you did was wrong for sure. But listen, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God had a plan. Even in your mistreatment and abuse of me, God had a plan. And because of his plan, I'm here over the food supplies of Egypt and I can feed you. I can feed my family for years to come because of God's plan. And that tells me that the grace of forgiveness comes to us when our eyes are open to the plan of God in allowing what he allows and permits in our lives. Second story I reread this week is the story of Corey Ten Boom. Familiar with this story? Movie was made of uh, her story a number of years ago. Do you remember the name? Hiding Place. Yeah. If you've never seen it, it's, it's worth seeing. Here was this woman with her dad who was, owned a watchmaker's shop in the World War II years in Holland. And, you know, the Nazis came in and took over the country and started exterminating Jewish people. They hated the Jews. Well, they had Jewish friends. They had Jewish employees. And so they created a hiding place, a secret place in their home where they asked Jewish folks to come and stay so they could be protected. And they did this for a period of time, but then they got found out. They got discovered, and they were hauled off to a concentration camp. And uh, as women, they were subjected to unspeakable atrocities in this concentration camp staffed by... Nazi soldiers. You you don't even want to know all that went on there. But what happened over time, a miracle happened, basically. One day she received a card that said released. Like she was supposed to be released from this camp. And she thought, this is a cruel joke. Somebody's playing a joke on me. This can't be. But sure enough, it happened. It was orchestrated and she was released from this camp. And she went around and started to speak to in churches and congregations, telling her story of God's mercy and God's love. But something happened one day that tested all of that like nothing she'd ever experienced. Let me read you her words as she tells the story. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former Nazi soldier, the SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. See, all the women, when they were processed, had to strip down naked and throw their clothes in a pile and were forced to walk in front of all of these jeering men, including this particular Roman, or, uh, German soldier. She writes, He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that day. And suddenly it was all there again in my mind. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister's face, This man came up to me as the church was emptying out and he was beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine and I, who had preached so often to the people their need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as those angry, vengeful thoughts boiled within me, I saw the sin of them. 
Jesus Christ, I realize, had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? So I prayed, Lord Jesus, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I couldn't do it. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity towards him. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I can't do it. I cannot forgive him. Would you give me your forgiveness? And as I reached and took his hand, she writes, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than our own goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. For when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, he gives us the love itself. Let me tell you why I'm so encouraged about this these days. It's becoming apparent to me that the wind of the Spirit, remember we talked about this last week, the wind of the Spirit is blowing into people's souls, is blowing through this congregation, and is enabling people to forgive grudges that they've held for, in some cases, years. It's happened many times over the last month and a half or so. I've been listening and I've been hearing and I've been engaging with conversations and people and a number of people have said to me, Steve, I have been given the ability to forgive someone that I have had a grudge against for a long time. A spouse, a parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, a boss or former boss, an employee, a sibling. And so I press a little further and say, well, well, how did it happen? Did you like, you know, make a choice to forgive and then you know, grind out some forgiveness. And in each case, they've said, no, it wasn't like that at all. It's more like it was taken from me. All the anger, all the, the acid of bitterness, the, the hurt, the offense, it's like it was, it was pulled out of my heart. And I have this newfound ability to just forgive and love this person that I've hated. I'm thinking, so are you telling me that this was like God reaching into your chest and extracting the, the hurt and the anger and, and, and the offense and all of that? And they're like, yeah, that's, that's what it was. One husband talked to me not long ago, and he said, you know, we've, my wife and I, we've been separated for a time now. It's just all this turbulence took place, and we just got further and further apart. We were separated. But he said, one day I woke up, and it was gone. Like all the, all the anger, all the, all the offense, all the hurt, it was just gone. And he said, so I called her up and we were, you know, separated by miles, living in different places. I called up my wife and she said that the same exact thing had happened to her the same day and they forgave each other and couldn't wait to get together again. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. That, God did that? Somebody told me that last weekend, right in this room on Good Friday, Stations of the Cross, as they were walking through the different stations and seeing the last final days and hours of Jesus before his crucifixion, that they saw, their eyes were open to the price that Jesus paid for their offense and their sins against him, the suffering that he went through. 
This person wrote an email and said, my grudge against this other person dissolved in that moment. It was just gone. It was taken from me. And I was able to forgive them in that moment and go through the rest of the stations of the cross with a clean, ungunked heart. I talked to a person on the phone on, I think it was Wednesday night, and they said, last Sunday, Easter, I was born again. God gave me that new heart, and I came alive and went up front and was prayed with. And they said, one of the things that happened in the midst of that was a five-year grudge that I had held against someone was just removed. It's like God reached in and took it out of my heart. And they said, it's all different. I've forgiven them now. happened last night in our Saturday night celebration. A married couple sitting right over here came up after the service and they said, while you were talking, when we turned the note sheet over to the backside and saw the word forgive, the wife said, a grudge that I've had against my husband for years was gone, just removed. Happened after the first service this morning. I'm not a big numbers guy. But this week I've said, I just sense there's, 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 God, there's at least 10 people over the course of the weekend at New Life. There's at least 10 people who've had hatred for someone or a grudge against them. Their hearts are all gunked up with bitterness. They haven't been able to love. And there's, I'm just praying, there's 10 people that, that could you just reach down and do that divine extraction work and pull it out of them? free them up. And up into this service, there have been nine. So I believe there's at least one person in this room right now that this is happening or it's already happened or it happened during worship. That The Spirit of God is just going to reach in and take all that hurt and anger and bitterness and frustration and desire to get back and retaliate and get even and even the scales. He's going to take all that away. And you're going to go, I'm, I'm, I'm free to forgive and love that person now. A spouse. A son, a daughter, a dad or mom, a grandparent, a boss. An employee who did you wrong. And God's doing it. What you could never do for yourself because you've tried, right? Tried to forgive him. Tried. Tried to grind out some forgiveness. God in his mercy and grace is going to reach in and just extract it. This is the beautiful, glorious work of the Holy Spirit in a person. Opening their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Right-sizing the offense that was committed against them in light of their own sins against God. Not only putting it all into perspective, but then literally extracting the offense from their soul, tearing it away from their heart, freeing them to forgive and love again. You see, unforgiveness puts you in prison. Did you know that? You think you're hurting them. You think you're, you're creating pain in their life, but it's hurting you. There's shackles, there's chains, there's barred gates. It's a prison of your own making. When you hold on, and nurse that offense and rehearse it over and over again. You're not getting even with them. 
You're shackling yourself. Unforgiveness in the sight of God is unforgivable in light of his immense forgiveness of us. It's inconceivable to him. But forgiveness from the heart is a work of the Spirit. Forgiveness is Christ-like. Forgiveness is an evidence of being born again and receiving that new heart. Forgiveness obeys Jesus' command to love your enemies. Forgiveness is often the first step of love. And love is the greatest thing. It's the greatest thing. I've asked this question at each of the other two services. How many of you have experienced in your life this divine extraction where God just took something away, an offense, a hurt, took all the anger away and enabled you to forgive? Just sometime in your life, any time in your life. Okay, a higher percentage in this group. Praise God, you can put your hands down. There's a little box on the back side of your study outline. Do you see it? It's empty. But God's been talking to some of you in this room, at least one. And there are some initials of a person. Maybe since I started talking, maybe even before that, this person, their screen, I mean, their face appeared on the screen of your mind. It's that person you just, it's not in you to love them. It's just not. And God's talking to you about them. And I'm going to ask you to write their initials in that box. Some of you are going to fill that box up with initials because there's more than one. Would you do that? So, Lord Jesus, I pray that as your spirit has done this work of removing an offense, just reaching into the chest and pulling it out, and it's gone. Would you now give each of these precious people wisdom? Are they supposed to go to this person now and tell them, I've forgiven you? Or will that stir up things that ought not be stirred up and they should just rejoice in your work in their own heart? For everyone who just raised their hand, would you give them your insight and your wisdom into their particular situation to know what the next step is now that they can forgive and they can love again? And Lord, for the rest, Lord, who are struggling with this and they've got some initials written down in that box and they're not there yet. Lord, would you grant them the ability to humble themselves before you and to ask you for your grace, your grace to forgive, because you give grace to the humble, not to the proud. You stiff arm the proud, you resist proud people, but you offer your wonderful grace to humble people. Lord, for those in the room who are struggling with this right now and are at least to the point where they want to forgive, would you listen to their prayers, their humble prayers, and grant them that divine capacity that comes with the new heart to forgive and to love because love is the greatest thing and we will praise your holy name for every good thing you do in our body in our congregation in Jesus name I pray